Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. With us today is Steve Jones of Redgate and all sorts of other SQL DBA fame. Um, Steve and I go uh, uh, back a bit. Um, uh, Steve, what did we meet? First met when you were running SQL Server Central and yep. I think we had a conversation. You asked me to write some things. I didn't get to it because, well, you know, kid, firstborn kid and all at the time. But uh, we've stayed in touch over the years. And so, Steve, tell us a little bit about what you're doing today, and then we'll get into the, today's topic. Sure, sure. Thank you very much for having me, Sid. So uh, my name is Steve Jones, as Sid said, and I still run SQL Server Central today. Uh, it's a portion of my job, maybe about a quarter of my job at this point in time. But uh, I've got 30 years of experience working with databases and software, and I've, I've grown up as a software developer, as a network administrator, as a DBA, and as a manager of those groups and in a variety of different jobs throughout my career. At one point, uh, I was started to write some articles. Uh, I, I, I did have a kid at that time, Sid, but they, they were <laughs> slightly older. They weren't newborns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I wrote some articles, a few friends and I got together and we founded SQL Server Central. And eventually that grew to the point where it became my full-time job. And I did that for I think full-time about four or five years. And then Redgate Software actually purchased SQL Server Central. And they asked me to stay on and continue to run that and, and help them with other parts of their business. And so today I still work as an advocate slash architect with Redgate Software. I still do a lot of marketing, speaking, educational work with the community and others. I also work with customers to help them architect solutions that uh, help them get better at building and managing database software. That, that's really my focus these days. And uh, and the offer still open, Sid, if you want to write some articles anytime. <laughs> I, I I will actually take you up on that. We've got some fun ones. So, um, and actually, you know, my, my co-host, Lee, we should have him help write some things as well. But now, Steve, this conversation is a little different than other uh, guests that we've had. So right. most of the people, you know, you, you and I represent things inside probably even the same universe, but different aspects like, you know, on the spiral arms of the galaxy, right? You know, I, I've always worked on the receiving end, like the, the business intelligence data warehousing, and you have worked more on the generation end, like working with developers, building, and, the, you know, all the data management aspects that go into that. And, and so you are, I think, one of the first guests that we've had that works at the forefront of how the data gets created, because you're you know, like your target market isn't necessarily, you know, and Redgate's target market isn't necessarily me and what I do. It's what the others do on, on the app developers and the, the content creators. So tell us, you know, a little bit about that perspective. Well, I would, I would say that, you know, they're related because tangentially, you know, we, we do similar things often, right? Like certainly mm -hmm. on, the, on the transactional side, we source a lot of data. But then we do some reporting or we do some, what I would say, light analytics on it, right? We're trying to sometimes just understand small counts or we're trying to understand what's happening in transactional systems. And in the, the kind of the more analytics or the, the warehouse side, you're sourcing data from us typically. It could be other sources mm -hmm. as well, but then you're doing heavy analytics and the focus is just slightly different from a database perspective. You tend to deal with larger amounts of data, uh, larger 
more complex analytic type things. And mm -hmm. speed and timing are often slightly less important than they are on the transactional side. But even though our focus at Redgate and my focus typically with software is on the uh, OLTP or transactional side, we do find a good amount of warehouse people coming to us because your warehouse systems have to grow and change just like the data systems change when we are gathering new types of data or we're changing structures. And that's become a big focus, I think, in the last 10 years as DevOps has really grown beyond software into the database world. I won't mention this person's name because I love him to bits, but it was hilarious. I've worked with him, awesome, awesome data consultant, worked with him for 10 plus years. And I remember being in Denver one time and he was, was like, I, you know, and this was only a couple of years ago. And he looked at me, he was like all proud. He's like, hey, I just checked my first bit of code into Git. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the first time you've done this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's this beautiful kind of merging. And, and maybe that's then the, the segue into the next bit is that you are really at the heart of innovation and change management. And the nice thing is like that the, the, on the dev side, they've understood change management can drive innovation. And I right. think people are starting to really get this concept more on the, on the data side. So let's talk a little bit about what you've traditionally seen on the, on the app dev side in change management and database and the pains people feel. Because then I hope what the listeners will hear is, you know, oh, I'm, I'm on the, the data warehouse side and I can now relate to these things that Steve's talking about. Yeah, so I think, right, traditionally on the transactional side, we have often built software that connects to a database and we, we you know, send rows back and forth, right? We make data changes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the app dev people often have felt a lot of pressure from uh, their customers to deliver new features, right? To uh, collect more data, to respond to business needs. And there have been a struggle with the database because uh, often we have a DBA or a, maybe a senior developer that understands the database that is left to try to make changes and have those move at the pace that the software developers want to work at. Uh, and I, mm -hmm. I certainly see similar things happening in the warehousing space now where we have people asking for more and more analytics, more and more queries of things. And it feels like in some sense, we've, we've gotten way better in visualization analytics tools. And at the same time, structurally beneath those, um, it, it's is we've created some more complexity in trying to get all that data assembled, get it into a lake or a common format or, you know, transform it at speed so that people can work with it. And that's very similar to what we're doing on the transactional side that, you know, app devs want to build software that, uh, you know, adds a new screen that adds auditing, that does some new thing customers demand, and they're struggling to get the database to respond quickly enough to actually allow them to deliver that and, you know, test it to see if it's an experiment that works well, or do we abandon it and go back and try something else? It's a, it's a constant challenge these days as we just have to go faster. We have to build things quicker. I think it's a little bit of a misnomer, well, not a misnomer, but um, misrepresentation in the data space, both on the AIML and in the data side uh, on data warehousing and, and building the, the insights and information platforms that our testing is so different from app dev. Like it is, but there's right. also similarities in that, you know, yes, they write code and they are gonna write code that will generate data, but also they sometimes have to seed, you know, the database with information or other things like that. And so now you both have, you know, we talk all the time in, in machine learning 
is not just the code, it's the data. So it's the data right. and the code and everything else. But in many cases, that's also the same thing over on the app dev side. It's not to the same extent so many times, right? Right. But there are there is versioning of information and data that's important as well. So, you know, what are some of these other things that you see, you know, if you're going to kind of frame this like innovation and change management opportunity, where, you know, from your perspective of working with many customers and many different, many different talks, many different speeches, you know, what, what do you see that there's um, a common framing problem here? I mean, I think one of the common, well, maybe one of the most common things, as you said, you know, you've met somebody in Denver that just checked something in the Git is that, yeah. <laughs> you know, core good practices, probably that uh, some of us learned in university, some of us didn't, but these practices of kind of kind of track and version code and work in a team, uh, they're missing a lot of times in the data space that we've uh, depended on tooling or uh, I think because of the weird nature of databases, we've expected that code to live inside the platform and we mm -hmm. work with it there as opposed to dealing with it in text. So, you know, Sid, I'm sure you've written, you know, some C code or Pascal or something in your past. And that code is always text. We submit it to a compiler and then we get a result that we can use to do something. Um, mm -hmm. In a data space, we don't have a compiler outside the platform typically, right? Mm -hmm. even, even in the NoSQL world, most of the platforms have the compiler inside of them. The compiler also doesn't take all of our code at once and resolve references, right? So mm. if, I, if I send index code and view code and table code, I have to send that in the correct order for it to be compiled. As opposed to if I work in C or C Sharp, I just send all my class files in. The compiler sorts out a dependency tree, generates you know a list of handles that will allow things to reference each other and puts that together. Uh, even if we do late binding or runtime binding, it, it still sorts that out with hooks. But in the data world, we, we kind of don't do that well. And we even get into strange places uh, where we have dependencies that can be broken in the database and that code can still live there. So if I've written mm -hmm. a view that, that asks for uh, you know, five columns and I delete one of those columns later from the table, the view still lives. I don't have necessarily any insight that that view is broken until <laughs> somebody queries that view. And uh, <laughs> I think that kind of stuff often can be worse in the warehousing or analytics side because you do a lot of uh, periodic roll-up stuff, right? So often when I've worked with warehouse or analytics people, they are doing year-end roll-ups or quarter roll-ups. And we might've removed some data or transformed something and we won't find that out until months later when somebody goes to run a report because this view or this structure is only queried once a year or once a quarter. And so I think just the, the whole aspect of being a little more methodical about how you build software, about having better the comprehensive testing of what's out there uh, is a problem in both sides of our, our data world, right? Both in the transactional side and the analytics side. I, I remember ages ago, helping a large retail outfit based in downtown Austin, Texas, um, helping them optimize some of their regional databases, both for transactions and for reporting. When I analyzed all the tables and the structure of the everything, it's like, well, they had a partition scheme that they thought worked right. until somebody had massively shifted what data was stored in the live version of the database. Well, then that partition scheme was absolutely useless and actually causing lots of pain. Right. Right. Um, so, so yeah, there's a lot of, on the change management side that just completely gets forgotten, like even deep in the weeds, you know, yeah. like we're ostensibly abstracted from that in some of these cloud platforms, but not everybody's going full cloud, right? Right. So. Right. For sure. So when y'all 
are working with and you know steve you've got again the the while you're in software you still have like the vantage point that con the consultant has which is like the many customers with the many pains right but even with the many customers and the many pains you can y'all can start to see these archetypes these personas emerging so kind of walk through walk us through come some of these ideas on the personas that y'all see as you're working with customers so uh, maybe I'll start with the DBA, right? Because that is kind of yeah. the typical person. And th that person often may sit on the transactional side or the analytic side or, or with both where they have, they, they feel responsibility for production data or production systems. So that could be warehouses mm -hmm. or that could be transactional systems. And they feel pressure to not only keep these things up and perform it, but uh, they want stability across time. And so mm -hmm. they often become kind of a hindrance in change. And it could be on either side that on the transactional side, we're growing or, or changing our software. It could be on the analytic side where we need to adapt to uh, ingest new data or new types of, uh, you know, objects or structures that we have to analyze or put together. And so that's one of the personas that we deal with where we often have to convince them that, A, we're not trying to get rid of their job or get rid of them, that they still have a lot of value, that a lot of the work that they do to control change and be careful is tedious and mundane, and it's not necessarily valuable work for them. It's also not very interesting. You know, I've, I've had to do deployments where, uh, you know, I show up someplace at midnight and I have to run a bunch of scripts and I have to get them to go through. And if there's problems, I have to troubleshoot them. And that's, that's not the most interesting part of my job. Certainly my wife doesn't find that very interesting at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, what we really try to do you know, in the DevOps space is we want to create repeatability and reliability for what we do. We want confidence in our stuff. And uh, Redgate has gone down that road while I've been there and spent probably the last 10 or 12 years really trying to build tools to help our customers do repeatable, reliable database change management. So whether that's in a warehouse in something, you know, like uh, Teradata or Synapse or Snowflake, or that's in a transactional system with Oracle or SQL Server or Postgres or anything else. You've mentioned the first zone, the first persona you zoned in on is that like that DBA persona. Yeah. There's some maybe stories or other things behind like why that's the person, the persona that outside of, you know, the, the space you work in, like tools are written towards the DBA, but they're written towards the devs too. So, but yes. why, why was the DBA the first persona that you, you gravitated towards? I think because that was one of my early jobs. Like I've kind of jumped back and forth a little bit between DBA or mm -hmm. developer and uh, that was the one, well, A, it was the most profitable one for a long time, it's, yeah. <laughs> which does matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But B, it was, it was, I liked it because it was kind of outside of traditional organizations and general DBAs mm -hmm. uh, work across lots of teams. They have lots of responsibility. Uh, a lot of your job is insurance if you do it well, if you're preparing things mm -hmm. and you get to see a lot of good things happen. And as I tried to uh, avoid being the the grumpy old DBA I'd worked for before and try to be more adaptable and helpful to others and try to solve problems and make my job interesting. I think that's a mm -hmm. persona that I, I deal with a lot and, and I work a lot with customers trying to make DBAs comfortable with the idea that making changes in a database faster or that refactoring code is not going to ruin your life. It's not going to break everything and it's not going to cause you to work 100 hours a week. Uh, those types of things that I've done. And so that's a persona that I certainly spend a lot of time trying to develop some comfort, right? Trying to change their culture yeah. of how they view their job. 
the seminal book, The Phoenix Project. What did that, mm. was that written 2008 now? A uh, long it's time ago. A, yeah. Yeah. It's 2006, 2008, like when Gene Kim wrote that one. Um, and so, you know, I think that with the joke back in the day used to be, it's like, oh, what, deploy on a Friday afternoon? Sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but what is your perception on where the general market is today? You know, I think we can make mistakes looking at guidance from like the big tech firms, right? And yes. They have to do this, right? Like if you're big tech, if you're or just a tech focused firm, this, you know, this mindset of proper change management so that you can innovate fast and safely and deliver good service to your customers or good product, whatever that is, like has to be part of your ethos. But not everybody's that way. It's like the other person's like when, you know, the customer has mentioned in the database stuff. They looked at me one time when I was trying to give them, like, hey, guys, why don't you have this together? And they're like, hey, we're really good at retail. It's like, fair point. My apologies. Right? To you some know? extent, right? But I think, you yeah. know, in this world now, Sid, there are, there's so much competition, right? And there's mm -hmm. so many people like us that have worked in an industry that we have left and started our own business or tried to find a way to work in that industry, mm -hmm. you know, and we, ha we can create advantages with software that, it impact a lot of businesses and you'll honestly start to see people churn even in smaller businesses. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I worked with a customer that did very specialty software to um, law enforcement and fire departments. And yeah. you would have thought that that's a very narrow niche, but they had a lot of competition. And even though once you're entrenched, a police department or a fire department doesn't really want to change their software. Uh, I was surprised how often they got people to churn away from a competitor. And so mm -hmm. I think that not everybody, but a lot of companies are finding that uh, they're, they're seeing pressure from their customers or they're, they feel the pressure that we need to maybe not move at Google speed, at lightning speed, but we do need to mm -hmm. be adaptable. We need to be improving our service, even just in things like payments, right? Like I'll yeah. tell you now, I've been going to Europe a long time. So RedGate is based in Cambridge and mm -hmm. for a long time, I mean, 15 years or something, they've had tap pay, right? And yeah. in the U.S., we never had that for so long, right? Really until the pandemic, we really never had yeah. that. And now, as I've seen it adopt, I find myself and I find others, like avoiding stores that don't allow me to tap my phone and pay for stuff, right? Yeah. And that's, that's little coffee shops, right? That's all kinds of businesses now that have to adapt to software. And even if they're not building mm -hmm. the software, they still need to be comfortable using that stuff. And so it creates a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of little companies, not just Square and Stripe that supply that stuff. There's a lot of, uh, you know, single people, single developers that build apps that run on your phone or run on your tablet that give you business. So I think that it's more pervasive than you think, you know, mm -hmm. once you start to think about the whole world, but it's certainly not everybody. And certainly not everybody wants to go super fast, right? That, that's very true. And not everybody wants to go super fast, but I, I hope what more and more and, the, and kind of the awesome thing I'm seeing in the market from my side is more and more customers realizing, you know, that like she who owns the data rules the world, right? There's some great case studies even written on like the Tesla platform, right? Like they have made a very big decision to focus on open source, open source platforms and yes. owning the innovation and the change management and the data, you know, which allows them to rapidly change pricing, you know, change yes. configuration options and respond. 
you know, and if you don't, if you're trapped, if you don't own your data, right? Like there's a, there's another state that I've worked with where the state is actually making that change. It's a yes. whole customer service transition. How do we make it easier to do business with the state? And it's like this huge, you know, awesome vision that they've outlined, but it starts with data. It right? does, does, so, you know, and, and they've got to be more adaptable. Like I see it more and more because I do work with, you know, fed or state governments or even overseas mm -hmm. governments as well. And, you know, so I think it used to be that I always felt if something got to production in a database, right. And whether it's mm -hmm. transactional or warehouse, I'm probably going to have to live with that for 10 years yeah. or longer, <laughs> right? Like okay. if I, if I've designed yeah. a model, I probably am stuck because as mm -hmm. soon as that goes out, there's software built on top of it. There's reports, there's ETL, there's all kinds of stuff that's unfortunately codified that, that name of that object or that name of that column or something else. Mm -hmm. And changing that has been very difficult in the past because the database is central and we coordinate with so many other platforms. Yeah. And what I'm finding now is that more and more customers are wanting to be able to refactor those things and go faster, which means that I need to A, be smarter at how I approach database software development or refactoring. Mm -hmm. But I also have to be able to coordinate these changes across multiple platforms, right? Whether it's app or whether it's downstream systems that could be ETL or reporting systems that I've got to get these changes to roll out in relatively short order. Otherwise, uh, we're not really taking advantage of things. And even though there are companies that think they're great at their businesses, uh, they mm -hmm. find as they try to evolve and adapt to whatever the executives think about or whatever management thinks about, they're really slow. They're just really mm -hmm. slow to do so because it, some things just take time. And Regardless of what you think about the AI world, we're not getting rid of humans and it's still going to take time to build and change software. And, and the software we're talking about is what ends up creating the data that all these things run off of. Absolutely. You mentioned talking about the, you know, the DBA persona, and then yep. we talk a lot about bridging like that dev and that ops cycle. You mentioned people don't change it often. The Phoenix Project, that book, what came out in 2006, 2008, I'll have to go fact check myself and yep. maybe publish a, but it's not new agile manifesto 1999 like and we yes. hear we still are having these conversations about how do we optimize lead time cycle time and delivering innovation and change to the customer so you know the on on those arch types that you see honed in on the dba but you you probably also have cultural work and and bridging bridge building to do between the dbas and the devs right what does some of that look like for y'all so that's, that's very interesting. So when it comes to developers, I'm seeing a lot of different kinds of developers out there. Uh, there are the traditional developers that just uh, write C Sharp or Python or Java software for sure. And they often don't want to deal with the database at all. However, sometimes they are being forced that they still need to coordinate, uh, say, a change on a screen with uh, the change of a data type or adding a column or something else. So they, they do lightly have to write some sort of SQL code or database code. I also see a lot more of people moving to full stack developers where companies are just expecting the developers to do a lot of the database work themselves. Mm -hmm. And in both those cases, uh, we have uh, widely varying levels of understanding of how SQL and how database structures work, how models work and stuff. We also have wildly different uh, levels of confidence in terms of, can I actually produce that code, right? Mm -hmm. So in Java or C Sharp, if I'm building a class, right, I can say public static void, get customer parameters, whatever. Mm -hmm. And if I change that, I can add the parameters or I can change the code, whatever. But in SQL, if I say create table, 
I can't say create table with four columns instead of three, right? There's now different code. I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen that or your, your, your audience has seen that adding constraints, that adding, you know, views and indexes, the code structure of SQL is just weird and different. It's not, it, it's a horribly designed language in many, many ways, um, <laughs> but there's a challenge there. And so trying to get people to write code at a certain level of quality or consistency across different types of developers is hard. Trying to make it easy for them because they don't like writing SQL code. They became a Java or C-sharp developer because they like that code. Those are the challenges to work with them. And then to get them to understand that this SQL code they're doing is not just something we shoot off to a test system and somebody will figure out what happens, that this is actually code that needs to live in Git just like their C-sharp code or their Java code. Like those, those types of challenges with those personas that happen all day long. Now, you don't have to point fingers, and I know that you have the bias of the DBA, but which group have you found either more, is one group more willing to change than the other, one persona more willing to change than the other, Some, or, or is it just different based on the company? It can be different. I will say, in general, I think uh, developers are more willing to adopt something new because they're used to trying new tools, and uh, they mm -hmm. have so many things built for them, whereas tooling in the data space is pretty poor. Like it's the stuff you get from Oracle or Microsoft is very poor. Some of the open source database tools are just, I mean, there's something like I could write and I am not a very good software developer. Like if <laughs> I cannot make anything pretty, right? I, but yeah. I make it functional. So I think that in many cases, the developers are more willing if we make it really easy for them to make their changes in the database and then generate that code out. Right. There's a reason, like I said, I think you've seen probably in the last 15 years that things like ORMs, Entity Framework, code-first approaches are gaining a lot of popularity because there's not a lot of data modeling experience. A lot of the people that are trying to build systems don't want to deal with that stuff. And so they want it to just work. Unfortunately, a lot of those tools, again, they're, they're written to be effective and they're not really written to be efficient or performant. And so they cause a lot of problems because the developers get themselves in trouble because the tools aren't written well and they don't understand exactly what's happening or why performance is different on a production system with millions of rows of data as opposed to my test system with a hundred. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it, a lot of times I think that that development side is more willing to change, but it does vary. There's, I certainly see some DBAs that are just overloaded. And they're like, if you can make my job easier, I, I'm, I'm willing to try stuff. When you're looking at these... And these aren't the only two camps, but it's Correct. the two big archetypes, right? Of the, the, the dev and the operations person. When you're working with folks, how are you identifying where change can happen? You know, when you look at these things, what are either like metrics you look at, ways that the organization functions? So how do you, Steve, and some of your compatriots, like, hey, this is what we should probably focus on? Yeah. So when we think about building software at Redgate, we have tools that help you kind of capture code and then move it to other mm -hmm. systems. That, that's kind of our focus. And so my approach most of the time when I do discovery with clients is try to understand what their process is now, right? Like who's mm -hmm. making what changes, who's, who's has permissions or, or responsibilities, and then understand what doesn't flow smoothly with them. Mm -hmm. And then I look for the place where I make the smallest amount of change at first, because Adopting a new flow of building software, I think, 
it is, it is largely cultural. It is less technology and largely cultural. And I know that big cultural change is hard and that mm -hmm. for most of my customers, I think to adopt a smooth, like, like say DevOps flow probably is going to take a year to 18 months. Uh, yeah. you know, it, even if teams as small as like five or six, it's still going to take a significant amount of time to get everyone on the same page. So I look for the side that I cause the least disruption. So sometimes I say, you know what, let the devs do whatever crazy thing they're doing. They're still grabbing <laughs> scripts, all that stuff, emailing around DBA, you take those scripts, stick them in source control, and then use an automation tool to deploy them. Right. And it might be as yeah. simple as rather than you running scripts in order, you, you mm -hmm. rename them or you stick them in a tool and then you press a button and it just runs it for you. Right. So you're, you're still controlling the entire process. The only difference is you're just not clicking execute after every script, right? You're not opening every one and saying, run, run, run. And so that's sometimes the place to go. And then slowly we try to get the devs to be better at capturing code. On the other time, sometimes we go, listen, let's get the devs. You capture all your code. You know how to work with Git. Just stick it in there. You can do your pull requests and your branches and all of the stuff you know how to do. And then when you're done, you can create a release branch and you can take that bundle of scripts, right? Because in Git, I can just clone it down, create a branch, and I have a list of scripts. And you can still email that to the DBA or drop it in the share or whatever crazy thing the DBA requires. But it's often looking for who am I causing the least disruption for so that we can have mm -hmm. some success and make this process work. And, and I love to, when we were talking um, prior to this, but hey, out of a, all the different uh, Steve's vast experience, yeah. which is a polite way of saying we're old. They were, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, quite all. but yeah, but, um, what might we talk about? And so this was the topic, but then you mentioned like kind of three aspects, three venues here on continuing to build this capability at customers. And so you said like, Hey, um, yeah, you work to identify champions, you yep. know, the learning and upscaling. And then after those initial smaller changes spreading horizontally and vertically, so I'd, lo I'd love you to expand a little bit on those things, identifying yeah. champions, learning upscaling, spreading horizontally and vertically. All right. So let's talk about this. So uh, let me say this, that in the last five years, I do a lot of work with sales, with pre-sales and post-sales, which is a, mm -hmm. it's a very strange world to work in. <laughs> it's very different than technology. But one yes. of the things that, you know, we've learned in trying to make sales is that um, you have to generate some interest and passion from the customer to make things work, especially in mm -hmm. today's world. So Red Gate, yeah. we've moved to, to a subscription model. So we don't mm -hmm. sell software and walk away. Uh, you know, our mantra, or at least our CEO's mantra the last two years has been, we're successful when our customers are successful because we want them to resubscribe. We want them to feel they're getting value. And we know that that starts with uh, a, making sure that we qualify them and that their problem is something we can solve. And if not, then we wish them well and let them go find another solution. Uh, but B, mm -hmm. trying to find somebody that uh, agrees with the vision we come up with jointly, and then they want to implement it and move forward. Because uh, as I said, right, I'm trying to make the least amount of change, but I need somebody that's willing to make some change. Uh, I always tell customers, like, I have no magic. I have no sleeves here. So I can't give you a piece of software that magically fixes your problems. I need you to do something a little different. And so uh, when I'm looking for where I make the least change, I'm also trying to figure out who has some passion here, whether that's a developer or a DBA, or I got to say, honestly, sometimes the analytics people, like they're like, we have changed the database. They have to get through ETL now. Like they are very willing to go, let's go. Let's make sure that mm -hmm. when a change makes to the production database, we make that to the data warehouse 
you know, according to our different models, right? We have the yeah. OLTP data model and you have the star model or snowflake or whatever. We want to make sure that stuff happens. So we look for a champion. And if you read a lot of the Phoenix project, the DevOps people, all the success stories start with a champion or a small group of people that go, we want to make change. We want to make our jobs better. And then they learn how to do it and they teach everybody else. And so at Redgate, yeah. we find that to be a big indicator of success. And if we don't have a champion, a lot of times we know that this customer will struggle to implement change, implement our software, and they won't be happy later. And we don't like that and they don't like that. Redgate's not the only one to do that, right? No. I mean, it's, it's like, I was talking to my buddies over at Databricks and they, they've identified the same thing. Yeah. If you're looking for adoption, you have to have the champions. Yeah. How they champion matters because it's, you can almost always um, on the technology side find somebody who is super ecstatic about your tech, yeah. right? But are they ecstatic about the tech and the problems and it can solve or the opportunities it can create for the org? Yeah. That's the important piece is that they got to be that advocate for like what this change can do. Yeah. Um, and I love your, I, I'm going to, your other comment here, I think is also important to note, and I'm not going to take offense at all as a consultant, but you made a point saying the vet, a vendor or a consultant cannot be the champion, right? No. And, and by the way, it's like in all my years in consulting, like I say the same thing. It's like, we can't be the champion for the change. Like right. our clients have to be, yeah. and it's actually a risk if we can't find that, those, those champions. Right. Cause you give them great advice. You give them things to do. And if they don't, if they're not willing to take that on, if there isn't somebody yeah. internally, then it's, it's, I mean, you're happy they're paying you, but you still feel dissatisfied. Like I'm not making the change I would like to make. It's, it's incredibly dissatisfying, which is the years ago we started doing like on a lot of our things. It's like, well, let's identify why you need to do something different and make sure you're excited about that. Right. Then we'll, then we do a project. Right. And so that, that was like, a gosh, I don't even remember how long ago my buddy Josh and I did that, but it was a big turning point. Um, and, and being a lot more successful on the big changes customers wanted to pursue. Absolutely. All right. So we covered the cover champion that. piece. Yep. All right. Now, so learning, learning and upskilling. So learning and upskilling. the other big thing you mentioned. So as I said, right, all, most of this change is cultural. You know, that I, yeah. I know that myself and my great solutions engineers, we could install the software in any organization in a week and set it up. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't work well because we have to get people to think about the, the higher level of what we're trying to accomplish with the process because it helps them to figure out how they actually do their job and flow code through. So... A lot of the work is sometimes trying to get people to focus on the higher level process and not get focused on the actual details. Mm -hmm. And then once they do that, then most of the time what we find is with a lot of the tools these days, they're built to run as a CLI, right? A command line interface. And mm -hmm. running command line tools is really just scripting, which a lot of us have done through the years that we know we can, we can call a function. We do step A, step B, step C. We've built. Phoebe script and batch files or bash files or PowerShell or something else. And most of the automation tooling, right, uh, certainly from Redgate but from other places, is CLI driven. And so it's, it's trying to get them, listen, all you have to do is uh, take what you know about how I build a recipe or a step of things to do, make the CLI calls, add the parameters or the options or switches that are appropriate to your situation. Um, and you're just plugging this into a tool that just runs it in the order that you decide is important. Right? So a lot of yeah. times I'm just trying to level set that you have the skills to do this stuff. If you've been writing code, all you're doing is just writing code in a different way um, and just mm -hmm. calling a bunch of programs or a bunch of different interfaces to say this works, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and that's well, and a lot of it is just instilling confidence in people that they already know how to do this. Yes, they already know how to do this, but also that continuing education piece, because you, the worst thing that can happen is when you identify the champion, they're super passionate. You go and implement some of the changes. They have those initial successes. And then month two, three, whichever, you know, month N plus deployment. Now they're getting stuck because they haven't put appropriate learning paths in front of them about like getting more advanced with the ideas, both with tool sets, but also with process and procedure. Yes. And so it's there's that learning and upskilling is, is unfortunately, I'd see missed so many times in yeah. our customer bases. Yeah. And I'll tell you, some of the very successful customers we have, they've got a person or a team that's kind of become their champion team. And we will periodically go back and do some training with them uh, about mm -hmm. how and why we might do things differently or what we've learned from other customers or what we might recommend. Uh, so I had a few of those last year where I actually went on site not to train the customers per se, but train the champions inside the customer on, uh, think yeah. about some of these things that might help you uh, push this process out to other people. Oh, awesome. That's fantastic. And then your third point that I, I loved was that then spreading horizontally and vertically. And by the way, we'll, we'll caveat, it's like we know Steve's knowledge and is vast. It's not just these three things, but these were the three you gravitated right. towards. So that's just kind of the quick side note, just so people don't think the limit of your knowledge is three ideas. <laughs> <laughs> they might be, but <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so spreading horizontally and vertically. So horizontally is more teams, more projects, like getting it, things adopted, right? Obviously as a vendor that sells software, we like that because it, it, it's more money for us, even though we're user-based. So if it's more mm -hmm. projects, it may or may not be more money, but I'm a big fan of don't try to eat the elephant, right? Like take baby steps, mm -hmm. like let's work through things and then grow. And that's something I've done yeah. in my career a lot. Like I don't overcommit. I don't try to overpromise. I want to make sure I can deliver. And so we try, I, tr I try really hard to get customers to say, listen, try this in a place. And as you have success, then you can expand to other people, right? As they learn from you. Um, and the other thing is don't try to do everything at once. So we have, for example, we help people deploy scripts to the database. Sometimes there's problems where we might need to roll things back. Sometimes there are there's privileged data, right? So there could be security mm -hmm. impacted data. And so I often say, listen, don't try to make, get everything in there all at once, right? Do it, do something like, let's just get schema changes through. Or let's just get pro proc and view changes through, right? Mm -hmm. And forget about security. Let the DBAs continue to manage security as they manage security or let them continue to manage, you know, rollbacks manually, just deal with problems. And then slowly we add depth to it, right? That we add more complexity to our process and more flexibility based on what we've learned. Because if we never roll back, why would I build a rollback process? You know, I, I have customers yeah. that are like, we don't roll back, right? If we've deployed, the DBAs work all night, they fix stuff and we just move forward. And that's fine, right? But I, I try not to create things that aren't useful or effective. And so uh, I do try to get them start small, right? Narrow and small. And then you can grow that either way based on your resources and your appetite for change. Those are some fantastic points. Yeah. And I think the hardest thing we all look at is what are those factors that we should consider when trying to build or can grow capability within teams and the changes that we all want to go towards. And so I think that's the way you frame that up of identifying champions, learning, upscaling, and then just, you know, small changes, both horizontally, but horizontally, but vertically as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, I tried to say both words at once. You did. You did. You know, I <laughs> said, I actually find that too, like in the warehouse and teams we work with that sometimes 
I'm sure you've done this where we're trying to build some reports and you go, I need, you know, six terabytes of data to, to test this report. And I'm also like, listen, what you really need to do is build this report on a few hundred rows or a few thousand rows of data. And you need to understand logically, is it working? And then we can go to six terabytes and go, have I accounted for edge cases, right? Do I account for nulls or zeros or right ranges of data, yeah. all those things. But it's the same thing there. It's like, start small. Let's try to build some structure and testing that's appropriate for us and then go big when we're ready and not right at the very beginning. Yeah. So now... One other thing that's really cool about your work is that you see both U.S. and international customers. So on, on uh, kind of a closing thought here, how do you see risk valued? What kind of considerations do you see different regional customers or international customers taking? Yeah, so it's, I, I think overall people are people and software is software overall. Um, yeah. And surprisingly, almost everybody codes in English, which is fascinating to me, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's <laughs> yep. amazing. Yeah. But the biggest one has been the PII thing. And, you know, I was in Europe a lot in 2015, 2016, 2017, when GDPR was coming online. And that was mm -hmm. a big deal. And what I found is overseas, uh, in most of the rest of the world, people care a lot more about data privacy. They're very skeptical, skeptical of large corporations. They're worried about people collecting their data. You know, some of that timeshare marketing and weird stuff that we do doesn't happen overseas very much because people don't like mm -hmm. that. And so... yeah. They are more careful. Now, they're not perfect. And certainly, I think the bigger organizations are similar everywhere, but they are more careful. Whereas in the US, uh, I see most companies or organizations, they just don't care about data privacy. Like they just want to use data wherever it's appropriate. And even the, the regulated companies, even there's banks and insurance companies and finance companies that they'd rather pay a fine than change their process and be better at protecting data, which is which is both sad and it's also really fascinating to me. And a lot of people I talked about technology in the US, sometimes they, they take offense and they're like, we care about it. I'm like, I bet you do, but I know your boss doesn't or your boss's boss doesn't because they're willing to pay a fine and not make good TII changes. And at Reddit, we've seen that because we've tried to sell products in this area, in this space, and we find mm -hmm. that they succeed overseas, whether that's South America or Asia Pac or Europe, uh, they don't succeed in the U.S. very much because it's the relatively rare group of management and technology people that are like, "Yep, we want to be careful with privacy, and we want to be we want to take care of that." Yeah, it's it's a little bit of the wild west still it is. over here with with data. Well, Steve, where can people find you today? I noticed you had the the whole Redgate, you know, road trip tour. The yeah, I think I saw on LinkedIn at one point you broke the car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. where, where are you going to be doing any more speaking or road trips um, uh, in, in early 2024? I am, you know, it's uh, this is, a, this is an interesting year. I'm doing less public conference stuff this year. Uh, that being said, mm -hmm. I'll be down in Round Rock at the end of January for that conference. Oh, I don't know if you've ever okay. heard of that. Uh, that conference yeah. is, they do it in okay. Round Rock and they do it in Wisconsin Dells uh, once, a, once in each place a year. So I went last year and they had me come back. Uh, there may be a few SQL Saturdays I come to, but uh, really th this first part of the year, I'm doing a little more sales stuff and Redgate is doing some more tour stuff. So I'll be, I don't know if these are public things, but I know I'll be in um, San Jose in February. I will be in Atlanta in March. Uh, then I go down to Sydney in Australia and Melbourne and Brisbane for a little mini tour over there. Um, mm -hmm. And then I don't know where else yet, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, 
That sounds more like is a coming. Lot right yeah. already. So. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I've got 300. Okay. Well, I take it you won't be driving the van in Australia. You'll probably be doing that here, but I don't think the van's going to go make it to Australia. No. And Australia is a very large place. Like, yeah. Like, I, <laughs> right. Like, everything is like New York to LA. Like, everything is New York to LA. There. Yeah. It's, it's very far. Yes. My brother did a year in Australia and was just trying to describe the, the vastness and the vast emptiness of things. Yeah. And it's like, well, dude, we live in Texas. It gives us an idea of the vast and emptiness. But yes, it's even more vast it's and even empty more in vast. many places. Though. Yes. Yes. It's a massive place. Steve, it's been awesome having you on today. Really appreciate it. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, so Way Out West is my handle. It's W-A-Y-0-U-T West. So Way Out West. And okay. I'm on... You know, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, most most of the places that have a handle, that's me there. So you can always find me. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.